Good morning. It's looking an awful lot more like Christmas, isn't it? Both outside and inside. Some people have asked me if I miss the bone-cracking cold and the snow-covered fields of upland Indiana at this time of year, and um, I do. But about January 1st, it starts getting old. And I was reminded earlier this week that the first Christmas um, was a lot like this Christmas in that Jesus was born um, in a Mediterranean climate. And we live in a Mediterranean climate. So uh, if, if you want it to feel like Christmas, just step outside. That, that's what it felt like. Okay, I'm off track before I've even begun this morning. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 is the passage at which we'll be looking. Very familiar passage and especially for this time of year. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. Hear God's word. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Thus far, God's word. Well, this has been a crazy election cycle, hasn't it? When you think about all the fury and the foment that followed those campaigns from coast to coast, and uh, the persons who said that they would be heading to Canada... If Donald Trump won, uh, Stephen King, Barbara Streisand, Amy Schumer, and there's one community up there that's ready to receive them, Cape Breton, which is an island just east of all that Anne of Green Gables country, mounted a marketing campaign that basically said, if you don't want to give your tax dollars to the United States, we are happy to take them up here. (laughs) But now that the election is over... Everything is just continuing as it was. I mean, uh, talk radio, on campus, you'll hear conversations that go something like this. Um, Yeah, but Hillary Clinton won the popular election. But Donald Trump won the Electoral College. Yeah, but we live in a democracy where every vote counts. No, actually, we live in a republic where every electoral vote counts. And yet... Not even that means that Donald Trump will win because a week and a half ago, a Republican elector in Texas said he will not vote for Donald Trump when the Electoral College meets on the 19th of December, causing some to posit that others will follow suit. As of this past Friday, there are still states, five states, that are conducting recounts. And the social media Contributors, some of them uh, self-identifying Christians, uh, keep on serving up posts that flagrantly shame 
and berate readers who do not share their perspective on the results. Now the question is, have people always been this passionate about government? Have an American government? We'll answer this question, what is the hot ticket on Broadway these days? It's Hamilton. How does Hamilton end? With the sitting vice president of the United States shooting one of our founding fathers uh, in an effort to settle some governmental dispute. About two decades after that, a sitting senator and the sitting secretary of state met to do the very same thing, trying to work out their constitutional differences. That's passion. Any of you that uh, were alive when the Soviet Union and its Eastern Bloc allies were collapsing, you witnessed the power of passion unleashed in historic proportion on government after government after government. So when it comes to government, why are people, why are you, why am I so passionate? And it's because government is hardwired right into our very being. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, man and woman were commissioned by God to govern his creation under his authority. Of course, then you move into Genesis 3, and the adversary convinces Adam and Eve that they are able governors on their own. They don't need God, and soon thereafter, uh, you know, things begin to unravel, and Adam and Eve's experiment in self-government is over. Well, gratefully, the Lord provided a remedy for their rebellion, and it's found as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Since rebellion was introduced by a man, God determines to expunge it by a man, a Messiah, who's going to fatally crush the head of the one who tempted Adam and Eve and then reestablish God's rule, reestablish his government over his people. And from that point on in human history, uh, uh, people have followed one of two paths. A path on which men and women look for the Messiah of God's making, and then another path on which men and women look for a Messiah of their own making. And the question that we need to ask this morning, that I need to ask this morning and keep on asking throughout the course of my life is, down which path am I walking? Which Messiah am I looking for? Am I looking for a Messiah who will save me now? That's what the masses on Palm Sunday wanted, right? Hosanna, save us. Literally, now. Am I looking for someone who sees things just as I do? Someone who says things the way I would? Someone who does the things that I think are most important? Someone whose whose absence leaves me, as the recent election has seemed to left some of my Christian friends, in abject and profane despair? In fact, reading some of these things that my friends have posted makes me wonder if they didn't think they were voting for the Messiah and not the president of the executive branch of a three-branch government. So 
am I looking for a Messiah who will save me now or am I looking for a Messiah who will save me forever? Come what may, even if things all go south. A Messiah of such stature that if imprisoned on his behalf, I could write, as did the Apostle Paul, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content to know how to be brought low, face hunger and need. In fact, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or from that same place concerning the man by whom I may be killed. Like Peter wrote in his letter, honor the emperor. Well, the Bible makes it clear that God's people should be following that path, be following the second path, be looking for the Messiah who saves forever. We should be preeminently passionate about his government. But history and our own human experience tells us that we wend our way through life, moving from one path to the other. And on that point, the Bible cannot be any clearer. Consider the clear messianic markers that are established for us in the scripture, beginning again all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God promises a Messiah. In chapter 12, he says that Messiah is going to come through Abram. In chapter 21, he says that Messiah is going to come through Abram's son Isaac and not Ishmael. He says in chapter 27 that the Messiah is going to come through Isaac's son Jacob and none of the other 11 brothers. He says in chapter 49 that the Messiah is going to come through Jacob's son Judah, Judah and not the 11 other brothers, sorry. I knew I had some. You know when you're preaching, sometimes there's a whole conversation going on in the back of your head. I think you just goofed that up, and I had, but I just corrected it. <laughs> then in 1 Samuel chapter 7, God promises that the Messiah will come through Judah's multiple great-grandson, David, and then in 1 Kings 1, through David's son Solomon, not Adonijah. And it goes on like that, with crystal clarity. And yet, as clear as these messianic markers were, God's people regularly deviated and and, and even departed altogether from them. Case in point, the book of Judges. At the beginning of the book, God's people are living according to the authority of his word and after the example of Judah and his tribe, the bunch out of which the Messiah will come. But By the end of the first chapter, the the wheels are getting pretty wobbly, and by the end of the book, what do we know? We know that they were governing themselves according to what was right in their own eyes. Then in 1 Samuel, near the beginning of the book, God's people are clamoring to be governed by a king, which according to Deuteronomy 17, 15, was absolutely fine, except the king that they adopted for themselves was he was the wrong guy. Um, uh, uh, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, not the tribe of Judah. And, and Saul had none of the qualifications that were in Scripture. Uh, Israel chose him because he was tall, because he was handsome, 
because his family had a lot of money and not because he was uh, temperate in his behavior or a man of spiritual fidelity. Closest God's people ever got to firmly walking on that second path was during the days of King David, who understood that even though the Messiah was going to come out of his tribe, uh, out of his family, he was not the Messiah. And he also understood that the government that governs best is the government that governs according to God's word. The farthest they ever got was arguably during the days of King Ahaz, who was ruling over Judah at the time that Isaiah made these prophecies, the one at which we're looking this morning. Spiritually, Ahaz was a mess. He was a total mess. He put his politics before his principles. He was a a Jew that had sold out to paganism in some Uh, very disappointing and even disgusting ways. And his spiritual ruin compromised Israel's security so that militarily Ahaz was also a mess. In fact, the author of Two Chronicles writes, in the time of his distress, when you think he'd be looking for God, uh, uh, pleading for God's help, in the time of his distress, Ahaz became yet more faithless toward the Lord. And it was the ruin of him and all Israel, 2 Chronicles 28, 22 through 25. So Ahaz succumbs to the Assyrians and to the Philistines and to the Edomites. In fact, he loses 120,000 men to Syria and Israel after refusing the Lord's certain help to beat them in Isaiah chapter seven. Instead of governing on God's terms, Isaiah said, I got this covered, but he didn't. So in that day, if you wanted to live by God's word, it was a rough go. The Assyrian Empire was run by pagans. Uh, God's people were controlled by the same. It surely led a faithful heart to ask, as we do sometimes in our own day, Lord, uh, are you really out there? And if you are, do, do you really care about those who want to remain faithful to you? Well, that's what makes Isaiah's prophecy, and this section here in particular, chapters 6 through 12, so beautiful. Because politically speaking, even though the landscape is dark, prophetically speaking, the horizon is beginning to brighten. So that in chapter 7, God rebukes Ahaz by by basically saying to him, if you're not going to build a government according to my word, if you won't put my people on a path that points toward me, then I'll do it. I'll send somebody who will get it done for me, and here's a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. And that points us to chapter 9 in which our passage is located in which we learn who this son is and what his government, what the path that leads to it is like. We find it there in in all of its blinding glory. 
So uh, take a look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. As we begin by asking ourselves the question, who is this son? And as you can see in verse 6, whoever he is, whoever he is, he is for us. He's for us. He's for you. He's for each one of you. He's for me. We've got to let that sink in. Because you see, in God's economy, those who are ruled serve those that rule, right? I mean, we see this in a Greek and Roman mythology where the men serve the gods, great societies where people are at the uh, disposal of their potentates, even at work. I'm getting it done for the man, right? Man never does anything for you. You get it done for the man. But in God's economy, those who rule serve those who are ruled. Uh, That's why in the United States, which ostensibly is founded on Judeo-Christian principles, uh, we think of our public servants unusually within the context of history as what? Public servants, yeah. So God serves his people. And he does that by doing for them what they could never have done for themselves. And he does this not by rolling out a plan, not by impaneling some committee, but by sending a child, sending his son, the word made flesh. The word made flesh, which three times over back in verse three, brings great joy. No wonder John the Baptist in utero leaped for joy at the presence of his yet unborn cousin, the Messiah. Or why the angelic announcement of this child's birth was expressed as good news of great joy. Not just joy, but great joy, mega joy. Does the thought of this child bring you joy? Does it? If not, then you must meditate on that. You must think deeply about it. You must ruminate, you must cogitate on that reality. Because at times, you probably feel like you're a tool, like an object for some family member or friend or your boss. But you know what? This child is, is for you. He's for you. In fact, he shattered every burden you have borne. We see that in verse four. He's gonna burn every evil that you have ever endured. We see that in verse five. He's for you. And that's something to wrap your identity around. That's something to live for. That's something that when you understand it brings great joy And the better you understand it, the more joy it brings. Especially as you understand the multifaceted dimensions of this child's character. So notice, he is a wonderful counselor. Throughout this book, God derides human wisdom. In fact, at about nine points, he 
pulls it all together and just lights these things on fire. This child has wisdom that exceeds our own. In fact, Paul refers to this child as the very personification of wisdom. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that this child is the wisdom of God and the wisdom from God. What a beautiful thing that this Messiah not only speaks words of instruction, but then lives them out, exemplifies them before a watching world. He's the mighty God. John Oswald writes that this child possesses power so great that it can absorb all the evil hurled at it until there is none left to hurl. We're overwhelmed by evil. We take it on and when we become saturated, it just continues falling at our feet. The Messiah has taken it all in and upon himself. He's mighty. He's the everlasting father. Some people say, well, I can't think about God as my father because either I didn't have one or I had a rotten one. Well, that's why if you have or you had a terrible father in time, then you can take supreme consolation in having a good and loving father now and for all time. If you've lost your earthly father to death or abandonment, then you can take great comfort in the fact that you neither did nor ever will lose your everlasting father. And then the climactic descriptor of this child is that he is the prince of peace. As one scholar put it, through him will come the reconciliation between God and man that will make possible reconciliation between man and man. This is why Paul refers to the Messiah, the Messiah himself, as our peace. He is our peace, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Peace is found in him. He takes those who were formerly at odds with one another and he brings them together in himself and he actually creates a new man. For as many different ethnicities as are represented here in this room this morning, we are preeminently members of a new race, the Christian race, in which peace and harmony dwells. Because it's in him, it's in Jesus, and that's why any hope for, for justice in this world will be found exclusively in and through the gospel. That's the only way of uh, attaining peace and justice. Well, and according to the end of verse seven here, we find that this multifaceted Messiah, uh, this child, um, was certain to come. Because we see there that the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do this. God was serious about bringing this child into human history. In fact, that word zeal communicates that uh, this was accomplished with red-faced intensity. 
uh, the passion that stirs in the hearts of a bride and a groom, the, the focus of a warrior preparing for battle. And it was accomplished. It was accomplished at Christmas. And we know that because the Christmas story has Isaiah's prophetic fingerprints all over it. Well, while we celebrate this prophecy at Christmas, we, we only celebrate its partial fulfillment because while the Messiah did come in the person of Jesus, his kingdom, though inaugurated at that time, is yet to come in all its fullness. And that's why Jesus uh, told his followers to pray, uh, your kingdom come. Well, what's that kingdom like? Well, it's like the government that's expressed in these two verses uh, at which we're looking. One that you see there there in verse six, it it rests on Jesus's shoulder and it's a government that as we see in verse seven is forever certain and calm and upheld by pillars of fairness and decency. That's the government for which we're living. That's the path down which we want to walk, even if the horizon is tempestuous and uncertain and dark. When your feet are planted on that path and your eyes are set on that kingdom, you can walk even through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. That was certainly the case for Richard Williams and Alan Gardner in 1851 when they set sail as missionaries to Tierra del Fuego. Uh, as they worked their way south, they had to stop in a, uh, uh, a port where the weather became very cold, uh, a place in which they ran out of supplies, and a place that the ship which was supposed to resupply them never found. And so they ran out of food, and they all died. Uh, some months later, the, the ship was found, and on that ship, they found William's diary. And on April 18th, Good Friday of that year, he wrote these words. Poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel to our souls. And God, we feel and know, is here. Three weeks later, on May 7th, Williams wrote again. Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. That came from a man who was walking down a path that was leading toward a kingdom that would last forever. It was certainly the experience of my dad who faced his final months according to some words that we found typed on a piece of paper that was pulled out of his effects that were stacked on his desk. We, we found this after he died. He wrote, God is preparing a place for me in his heaven. All I'm experiencing now is to prepare me for that place. So I want to embrace my cancer, Verna's dementia, that's my mom, loneliness, physical pain, and bodily weakness because God is opening the final chapter of my earthly life. I need to cooperate with him to learn the lessons he needs me to learn in order to be ready for that place he's preparing for me. 
Every day is a new lesson, a new opportunity to allow him to develop the qualities in me which I will need when I meet him face to face. How can I be bitter? His spirit daily teaching me the lessons he's ordained specifically for me. I want to be a good and obedient student. That was written by a man who was walking down a path that was headed toward a kingdom that would last forever. It was certainly the experience of missionary Helen Rosevere, who passed away this last week at the age of 91. Rosevere came to faith as an undergrad at Cambridge and soon thereafter committed her life to missionary service. And during a, a missionary gathering, uh, in those days, she stood up and publicly, publicly declared, I'll go anywhere God wants me to, whatever the cost. And then she began to grapple with that and retreated to the mountains and had it out with the Lord. And she wrote that it went like this. She said, okay, God, today I mean it. Go ahead and make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost, but please, When I feel I can't stand anymore and cry out, stop, will you ignore my stop and remember that today I said, go ahead? Well, at age 28, and now a medical doctor, and now with the French language under her belt, and uh, a course in tropical medicine, she took off for uh, the Congo, where she settled in the Northeast region, and she founded a training school for nurses, She also uh, transformed this maternity and leprosy center into a 100-bed hospital and a training school for paramedics, among other things. Well, after five years, she was exhausted, and so she went back to England for home assignment and then returned to a very different Congo. It had been uh, liberated from its status as a colony uh, to Belgium. And in 1964, amidst governmental unrest, war broke out and everything into which she had invested her life was wiped out. All all these clinics and and the hospital, they were all gone. At first, Rosevere was put under house arrest. And then she was imprisoned. And then she was brutally beaten, thoroughly bloodied, and profoundly disgraced. And concerning that night, Rosevere wrote the following. On that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I had felt at last God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things need not have gone that far. I'd reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. And then in the midst of her despair, she said it was if she sensed the Lord saying to her these words, you asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. So in time, Rosevere began viewing 
her horror with, and I pick up her words here, an overwhelming sense of privilege. That Almighty God would stoop to ask of me, a mere nobody in a forest clearing in the jungles of Africa, something he needed. And from that point on, privilege became the banner under which Helen Rosevere conducted her ministry. In fact, Helen Rosevere was the neighbor of uh, Ruth and Rich Dix over there in the Congo. Twelve years after that devastating night, Rosevere told an audience of thousands, this is what she said, God didn't take away the pain or the cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, but it was not but it was altogether different. It was with him and for him and in him. He was actually offering the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. Those were words that were spoken by a woman who was walking down a path toward a kingdom that will not pass away. And so the question, brothers and sisters, is this. Down what path are you walking? In what government do you find your hope? Who is your Messiah? Is it Donald Trump? Is it Barack Obama? Is it Jerry Brown? Is it the Calderon family? you could give yourself no greater Christmas gift than to embrace the Messiah in this morning's passage and to begin walking down a path that's end at death is just its beginning. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these are big questions and they're so big that they're easy to push away. So help us to ask and answer them even today. What path are we walking down? For what government are we living? Who is my Messiah? And may we find our answer with all the peace and all the justice and all the righteousness and all the counsel and all the might in this passage. To your glory and our salvation, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.